When along the timeline did you guys decide we're going to buy a mountain? This guy, Greg Morrow, came to us and said, hey, I have a second home in Powder Mountain, and I, I know it's up for sale. It's in distress. And that was maybe in 2011. And we, we flew, I think, literally the next day after me and Greg, like last-minute flights, flew to Utah, went up to the top of the mountain, looked out at this you know, four-state view. You can see Nevada, Idaho, Wyoming, and Utah from the top of this mountain saw the awesomeness of being in nature. We all, you know, we were skiers and fell in love with the place and decided, let's do it. Let's see if we can pull this off. And we would buy this, you know, roughly $40 million asset and invest over $100 million and, and growing. We stand today. The Business Method the business with method. a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Today, listeners, I'm really excited to welcome Ryan Beagleman to the show. Ryan is the co-founder of Summit Series and the former CEO and co-owner of BizNow Media. In 2008, Ryan bought into BizNow Media, became CEO, and bootstrapped it with its founders, Mark and Elliot, from a million to $20 million in revenue and $7 million in annual profit. In 2016, he led the sale of BizNow to a private equity firm for $50 million, and today, BizNow is the largest producer of commercial real estate news, conferences, and webinars. BizNow now has 80 employees operating in 28 metro markets and hosts over 300 annual conferences, attracting more than 70,000 attendees. So I first learned about Ryan when I read Stephen Kotler's book, Stealing Fire. And in the book, they tell the story of three young guys that want to rub shoulders with giants and how they got there. Ryan and his buddies came up with an idea to host a ski trip for some of the world's top entrepreneurs and thought leaders. 19 people showed up and thus started what is now called Summit Series. Summit Series began as an event series with a mission to unite world leaders through events designed to catalyze positive personal and collective growth. They gather leaders and feature icons like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Jessica Alba, and Al Gore. I thought that idea was really creative and smart, but then as I learned the next part of the story, I thought it was one of the boldest, smartest, most genius moves I'd ever heard of. After creating Summit, Ryan and his friends decided they wanted to take their community building to the next level and buy a mountain. Yeah, you heard me right, buy a mountain. 
where thought leaders and entrepreneurs could live, work, visit, and enjoy. So they acquired America's largest ski resort for $40 million, Powder Mountain, where they created an actual town of entrepreneurs and successful people that go to the mountain for conferences, vacation, visiting, and living. Currently to date, they've sold over 160 million in home sites. So Ryan's going to hop on the show with us in just a second. Before we dive into it, I wanted to mention where you could find Ryan at. You can subscribe to his website blog at ryanbeagleman.com, and he occasionally sends out insights to everybody. Companies that have over 300000 or more in profit, he's interested in investing or buying some of those. And follow him on Twitter. And without further ado, let's welcome Ryan to the show. How you doing, Ryan? I'm great, thanks. How you doing? Good, man. Did I get everything right in that intro? <laughs> yeah, you did, you did a great job. Okay, cool. To start this off, this premise, I was on this island in Croatia with a bunch of cool entrepreneurs, and a guy was speaking there called Jamie Wheel, who I'd never heard of, and he did this presentation. It was absolutely fascinating on biohacking and mindset and all the crazy things that Jamie gets up to, flow states. And he talked about his book, Stealing Fire, and afterwards, I thought, man, I've got to get that book. I've got to check it out. Like, uh, he's the co-author with Stephen Kotler on, of stealing fire. And so I read it and this was 2018. This was one of my favorite books of the year for sure that I read top book of the year, I think. And they started telling the story of you guys, how you wanted to, and you can confirm all the details and like, we'll dive into it, but wanted to rub shoulders with giants and hang out with top entrepreneurs, started this idea for a ski trip where they came and then you turn that idea into Summit Series and eventually then raised $40 million to buy a mountain so you all could hang out and have a good time. And is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I mean, the one thing I'll say is we I wouldn't call it raised $40 million in a sense. We pre-sold lots to buy the oh, yeah. mountain. And I only mentioned the distinction because I love to spread the word that people don't need to raise lots of capital necessarily. They can pre-sell things um, and thereby bootstrap and live better lives by not being under the stress of uh, growth metrics and venture capital and things of that nature. But uh, but yeah, otherwise, um, you're absolutely right. That, that was that, That's kind of the genesis of Summit. I think that's one of the boldest, coolest community building stories that I've heard because I've been, I have a small community of entrepreneurs that follow me and I'm involved in some other entrepreneurial groups. And I'm fascinated, like one group that I'm a part of started out as just masterminds in the Philippines when they were backpacking nomads with laptops and making a thousand bucks a month. And now it's one of the largest location independent groups of entrepreneurs that are out there. And that's the Tropical NBA Dynamite Circle for you guys that want to know. And, and then Baby Bathwater is another organization that just kind of, I think they kind of were like, hey, we've got this mountain we hang out on. We want to create an organization of entrepreneurs that can come out and hang on Powder Mountain as well. And then we, we interviewed Vern Harnish. I interviewed Vern Harnish a few months ago. And same thing, you know, as a guy from a small town, I think he was in Topeka, and he just wanted to create an organization of young, awesome entrepreneurs. Now he runs EO and is one of the largest organizations out there. But like the essence of community building, especially for entrepreneurs. For me, it's such a, 
an exciting thing. And a lot of people don't understand it, but they do appreciate it, I think. Would you say at the heart of some people are natural born community builders? I, w- I want to ask you, uh, would you say at the heart of like who you are, do you feel like you're a community builder? Is it something that you fell into? No, I, I would say, I mean, in some sense I am, but I frankly, I'm like, I find it awkward going to at times like going to dinner parties and even going to my own events and hosting i I sometimes will dread it leading up to the moment Uh that i get there and then i have a great time and like i guess a little like my dad like that but um no i'm not like a gregarious like social building sort of person now my my co-founders in some sense are a little more of that but um but I am extremely curious. And so I love meeting people and asking them how they do what they do and, and sharing and learning from others. And so I think that definitely helped, you know, inspire us a bit. And, uh, and I love just building things and optimizing businesses. And so I guess there's some strengths I have around this, but I know I wouldn't say I'm a natural community builder. Let's start off and touch on BizNow Media and how you guys built that up, but then we'll dive into more of the, the nuts and bolts of Summit Series. You were, what's generally your background? You were in investment banking, right? And then you decided to invest and buy into BizNow. Were you friends with the founders of BizNow before? No. So I I did, I went the banking, then private equity route, worked to the Carlisle Group. And then while I was there, there, you know, they're a big private equity firm. I was reaching Mm -hmm. out to lots of, uh, a variety of companies to try to acquire a company, leave my day job at Carlisle get to a place where I can make at least $6,000 a month um, so that I could, you know, kind of liberate myself from working in private equity and go down the entrepreneurial path. This is back in 2007. I cold outreach to BizNow, which was this like uh, newsletter to the founders of it and uh, mm-hmm. asked them if they would sell it to me, ultimately became friendly with them, started kind of helping them uh, for free with the business a little bit. And then we had this idea that you know maybe i could build business outside of dc so like they were in dc they had a newsletter and i would essentially mm-hmm. kind of like start a new entity with the son of the founder uh with this guy elliot became my co-founder and we would launch business into new york and chicago and eventually 28 metro markets and each metro market would have a daily newsletter an email newsletter all about you know business news and we eventually ended up making it more and more about commercial real estate news and eventually we would also produce conferences sell advertising sell tickets to events that's how we would make money and um so i essentially bought kind of the rights to the business or 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 a big portion of the rights to the business outside of washington dc so where did you was your family entrepreneurial growing up because i mean you look pretty young man you look like you your resume sounds like you have 50 years of experience in entrepreneurship but you've done some pretty amazing things where where did you get the mind for an entrepreneur is this something you grew up with yeah i definitely owe credit to my parents um and the environment i grew up in my parents were my dad had a kind of had a series of small businesses my parents were pretty argumentative growing up, and which was actually to my benefit because they would come home and argue about the business. And I would basically be uh-huh. listening at the kitchen table um, to like the nuances of, you know, leases that my dad was working on or, um, you know, he owned some pizza, you know, like a chain of pizza stores. And, um, and so I basically learned kind of business through watching them and then started reading all kinds of books and kind of as, as early as middle school on all the billionaires and wall street and that kind of thing. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. started a bunch of little businesses when I was young. So that's kind of the, was the seed 
for, you know, thinking about being an entrepreneur, I suppose, early on. And then were you directed in a route of investment banking or is this something that you chose on your own? I basically wanted to save enough money to start a business and learn as uh, skills as rapidly as possible. I was kind of in a rush to get going. And okay. so the fastest path I could imagine or that I'd heard of was it was iBanking and, and strategy consulting. And I decided iBanking was, was better for me. And I, despite the fact that I'm actually not as strong quantitatively in some ways as I am verbally, decided like I would learn how to do Excel modeling and finance and accounting. And I was a history major, but I basically made it my mission to get internships at all these investment banks during school. And then eventually got a job offer to go work for one, backpacked around the world for a bit, uh, came back, took my full-time job at um, Deutsche Bank, and then leveraged that to get into uh, the Carlisle Group, work in private equity, and then started my entrepreneurial path from there. And what was it about BizNow that made you want to buy into it? What were they doing? Were they doing anything different that just appealed to you that made them stand out? Yeah, I think like one lesson I learned is like, you know, you can make money on your hobbies and uh, and like look at like the things that you're like passionate about because you're probably becoming an expert in these little niches. And so I was just reading a lot about real estate news, working at Carlisle, thinking about starting a real estate company. And one of the sources of news was BizNow. And, uh, and so I just loved uh, the nature of the newsletter. It was written by the founder, Mark Biznow. He was an absolutely brilliant um, journalist and uh, an entrepreneur. And so I was just reading his newsletter and then, um, you know, outreach to them to see if they would, you know, sell it to me or do something with me. And, and they were open to it? Like when you reached out to them, they were like, hey, let's have a conversation. To work no, <laughs> <laughs> no, they they didn't want to sell me the business. They were, they, they were excited about the business as they should have been. And, um, but they decided that they uh, really wanted to focus on DC. They wanted to do more verticals, more business verticals in DC. And so that's where the idea came where like, okay, well, what if I did it in other geographies? Um, which kind of taught me that, <laughs> sorry, yeah. kind of taught me that, you know, you can, um, you know, if a deal doesn't work the first time, you just need to be creative and go back and find another way. Yeah. And that's probably where we'll probably talk or we might touch on using creativity to find different solutions for not only business models, but also life models and lifestyle models to not stay in one mindset and accept that as dogma to always be questioning things. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a big part of my, my methodology for sure. So you guys sold biz now and then you were, so the same, the partners from BizNow, is that uh, the same partners for Summit or they're, I think they're different, right? Well, Mark BizNow is the original founder of BizNow and, um, and he was not a partner in Summit, although he's been uh, super helpful with Summit, but his son, Elliot and I, uh, were basically, uh, partners in both Summit and BizNow and had this strategy of building kind of like a conglomeration of businesses that we would each, um, have. Um, interest in. So I would, you know, spend a lot of time on Summit in the first three, four years. And then Elliot spent more and more time on that day to day. And uh, and I really ran uh, BizNow as CEO day to day. But we both worked a lot okay. on, on both ventures. And eventually, of course, Powder Mountain, and we started a venture fund and some other in a joint venture and did a variety of other things. When did the initial idea to, where did the idea to invite a bunch of people, thought leaders and entrepreneurs to a mountain to go skiing come from? We were working on BizNow and didn't know what the hell we were doing. And we wanted to meet <laughs> a lot of other entrepreneurs who we thought knew more than we did. And so uh -huh. it was really Elliot's idea to start cold calling them and inviting them on a ski trip, which wasn't really intended to be a business. It was a free ski trip. We would pay for even their flights. 
we just wanted to get people together and pick their brain. And, um, uh-huh. and so we gathered 19 people, uh, or really Elliot really kicked it off. He gathered 19 people for the first summit, which was in Alta, Utah, and, uh, and just rented a ski house and hosted these people and they loved it and liked kind of the unstructured nature of it. And then that led to the second summit and the third and the fourth and so on. And it kind of just grew bit by bit. And, uh, and there was some kind of like critical kind of tipping points along, along the way. Who can you say any of the names that were that you guys invited to the first summit or the first event? Well, we invited all kinds of people who rejected us or never took our phone call. You know, Zuckerberg, the founders of, you know, Guitar Hero and all kinds of stuff, YouTube. But ultimately, um, let's see, some of the initial people were uh, Blake Mikowski, the founder of Tom Shoes, uh, Tony Shea, uh, the founder or the, you know, the head of Zappos, uh, which sold to Amazon. And um, yeah, there was, it was, it was an amazing group of people. We had um, the, the co-founders of College Humor and Vimeo, um, Josh Abramson and Ricky Van Veen. And, and so they, they kind of came and helped seed the idea for, you know, making this more of a, a, a true community that would be ongoing now for more than 12 years. So you said that event was unstructured. What did you guys, and of course you went skiing, but what else did you guys like just have chats in the evening time or meet up for lunch or... What'd you guys do? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty disorganized, and as was even the second one, and to some extent the third. Like we would just we didn't even realize until just like days leading up to the second one. The second one was in Mexico. We realized, oh, what if we had some of the people who are attending speak? Like we had no speakers initially. There was no concept of like organized discussion or an agenda. We didn't even know until a sponsor um, liquor company asked us for a run a show, what the hell a run a show is, which is, you know, basically like a detailed agenda or schedule. I never okay. heard, heard the term. For the first I actually time. never heard it either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until like, now. Oh, now if you come to Summit, there's like 4,000 people and we've got 700 staff and there's like an extremely detailed run a show of like, you know, then this person's going to enter stage left and then the band, the marching band's going to come out and then the violinist is going to do this thing and then the fireworks go off. It's like, you know, now it's like much more of like a true um, production and we learned so much along the way. But initially, yeah, it was just, you know, hey, we'll get a bunch of people together like, and we'll have dinners and lunches and we'll go skiing. And, you know, the second one was in Mexico. At the last minute, we had um, Scott Harrison from Charity Water speak about, you know, social entrepreneurship and double bottom line businesses. And um, we had Blake Mikowski actually speak about how he was building Tom's. And we did a shoe drop with him where we went and put, you know, gave um, shoes to children in need. And a lot of that just kind of came together in like literally the days leading up to the event. In fact, I, I didn't even see the hotel until the day before the event when we arrived in Mexico. This is the second event in Mexico? Our second event, yeah. yeah. Nice. And, Back uh, to the first yeah. event, man. What was the initial cost for you guys? Were you guys providing dinners and all the meals too or everything everything included? Yeah, it was about $25,000, mostly put That's down on a credit card. Yeah. And um, yeah, we rented a house. Uh, and I mean, so you guys were all in the same house the whole week, all 19 of you or 20. Yeah. There were some people staying like off property as well. The house was kind of like a meeting point and some people stayed there as well. And yeah, we just like rented, you know, hotel rooms in a house and just kind of pieced this together. It wasn't really, you know, like I said, it wasn't particularly well organized. And it was, how many days was it? Five days? Uh, no, three nights. Okay. And, uh, and three days. And that's kind of been the format of summit ever since, uh, 
Okay. It's been a few nights and a few days. And then were you guys, did you guys pitch the idea for having more of these events, like in a paid format at that event, or were you just let them go and then ran the idea by them later? What, how'd that work? No, we, we kind of decided together as a group, you know, one night that we would do another event, but it really wasn't particularly well, well sold or like, well, and so we actually didn't sell tickets to the second one. The second one and the first one we paid for was sponsorship. We lost maybe $30,000 on the second one. It was a lot more elaborate and it was bigger. It was 85 attendees. And uh, we probably lost about 30 grand. I think it probably cost about 100 grand to produce in Mexico. And it wasn't until the third one that we said, hey, we sent an email, which was incredibly stupid, and just said, hey, here's sign up. Here's tickets. It's like $2,200 to come to the third one. The third one was bigger, a lot more expensive because it was an Aspen and there was lift tickets included and, and uh, more, the lodging was much more expensive, you know, in peak season in a ski resort town than Mexico. Uh, and so we decided we would go out of business if we didn't sell tickets. We sold like 30 tickets and then little did we know that there was like a few people basically saying like, don't buy tickets. These guys are kind of schmucks for charging because they thought it was like going to be free. Like it was just a bunch of friends. Like, I don't think they really understood. Like we weren't really, we should have been more forthright. And instead of being like, we kind of presented it like, Hey, it's exclusive. You know, you're kind of like fortunate to get in. There's a limited supply. So we came out with strength and we should have come out with weakness and been like, Hey, we're actually, we don't know what we're doing. This thing costs, we're in over our heads on cost. And so eventually we did pivot and we're more transparent about that and then that kind of won back a bunch of people who were like are, are these guys profiting off of like you know the introductions i made them which was kind of the vibe some of the people got from our just insensitive email um so there was a lot of lessons learned on, on that so that was the third event so when you yeah. sent out that email okay how what was the timeline between the first event and the second event Basically all the initial events are like four or five months apart. So it was like roughly a little bit more than twice a year. You know, we were at a clip a little bit more than twice a year. Yeah. And then, okay. So then you fast forward to the third event, which is in Aspen. How did you, when you sent out that email and realized that some people were upset about it, how did you manage those relationships? Because I imagine they were decent relationships. You took per, a person to Mexico or skiing and got some good rapport with them. But when you found out that those people were maybe a bit upset about it, what did you guys do? Yeah. So honestly, our, our, our co-founders, Brett and Jeff kind of saved the day. They came on board um, after kind of in, as we were finishing up the second event. And as we were about to go out of business on the third event, because we sold 30 tickets and then tickets uh, screeched to a grid, you know, uh, they, they screeched to a halt. Um, Brett and Jeff like got on the phones, flew around and actually met with a lot of people. And, you know, they're just, they're super, um, they're just great, great human beings and people love them. And they managed to be more honest than I think like we had been in our email about our struggles and basically get people to realize that like, you know, we're doing the best we can and then we're losing money and get people back into the fold. And then when people came to the third one, like every time people came to one of our events, they generally love the event. And, and, and so when people came to the third one, it was, you know, very transformative for a lot of people. A lot of people found their co-founders, their investors, close friends, a lot of people, you know, some people fell in love and, you know, got married later. And, and so, you know, those people spread the good word about the event. And then that, third event established that we actually have to charge for tickets 
And so by the time we went into the fourth event, which was in Miami, we had some more momentum behind us. And we had these other two co-founders, uh, really three co-founders, Brad, Jeff, and Jeremy, who came on board and like made a huge difference in helping to grow the community. When did you guys, did you name it after the first event or the second event where you were like, we're going to call this Summit Series or, or when did that come about? No, the, fir- the first event was, was called Summit Series. Was it? And you know, had a dinky like website and, you know, had me looking, uh, I think like by a second event, there was like a picture of me looking like, like a total kind of fool, uh, as like the chief entertainment officer, like giving, giving myself one of those cute Silicon Valley titles. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, yeah. And then we hosted this event in Miami and after the Miami event, um, there was a couple, there was like a couple of interesting tipping points. The, somebody who had come to our event in Miami, had to help run Obama's campaign mm. and had helped come up with like the hope campaign mm-hmm. element of the campaign. And, and so he ended up um, becoming a part of like the administration nice. and he said the white house, uh, like, you know, they determined for whatever reason that they wanted to meet entrepreneurs. And as, so as Obama was taking office, his like some of his senior leadership wanted to meet with young entrepreneurs and like extend like kind of a, a bridge between the white house and uh, the entrepreneurial landscape. Mm-hmm. And so they asked Summit if we could put it together and, and they only gave us one week to do it. And so we decided, okay, we're going to host an event at the White House. And it gave us this awesome excuse to reach out to everyone who had rejected us yeah. and say, hey, you want to come meet like the senior leadership in the new White House? And, you know, for what would be a free kind of just like a one night event. Uh-huh. And so we we did that we were nervous that like serious people from the white house wouldn't show up because they kind of kept it kind of like a secret about like who was going to meet with us and so we we started kind of a whisper campaign as best we could uh around the white house that this really important event was happening with all these major like tech leaders and we we kind of knew a couple of people who knew some people in the white house we basically got this kind of campaign going internally where people were kind of asking inside the white house like how come i wasn't invited to this like meeting and that eventually helped get some pretty important people that are senior in the white house to take the meeting pretty seriously wow and we had a meeting in the executive branch next to the adjacent to the white house and i think you know they had asked us not to post anything on social and anyway the founder one of the founders of uh twitter came and he posted about it while he was there and that kind of blew up a little bit and then somebody from the Clinton Clinton Foundation in Harlem heard about it and said, oh, you know, Bill Clinton's foundation wants to also tap into the entrepreneurial world. And this is in like 2000, maybe nine. And um, yeah, in 2009. And so they called us and said, hey, can you do something with, you know, the Clinton, you know, global uh, foundation? And that gave us this really cool excuse once again to like meet all these people in New York who we didn't know. We were living in D.C. at the time. And so we actually, we cold called around and somebody had heard that Russell Simmons was like newly divorced and, uh, you know, and that he had this like really cool house that was looking over ground zero. And we thought that would be kind of cool to host it there. <laughs> and so we, we just cold called his office and said, hey, we're looking for Russell Simmons. Does he want to host, you know, Bill Clinton? And, you know, of course, with Bill Clinton on the docket, like they said, yes. And so... We decided we wanted like a really cool chef to cook the, the meal. And we heard through the grapevine that um, Tom Colicchio, who's like this really famous chef, was doing a, uh, a shoot, like a, like a video shoot 
at Central Park for some sort of like Food Network show. And so we just went there. They said yes. And yeah. found his producer and basically like wedged our way into like, you know, his team and said, hey, do you want to come cook for at Russell Simmons' house with President Clinton? And of course, you know, they, they, he said yes. And, uh, you know, the meal would have to be vegan because Russell's a, a Buddhist and a vegan. And, and so, yeah, that gave us this awesome opportunity to invite all kinds of people from like the record industry who we had never known because they, you know, because of Russell's reputation as like a famous, you know, kind of um, like, you know, rap and R&B and hip hop uh, producer and, you know, brand. And, um, and then, you know, all kinds of nonprofit leaders who were interested in what Clinton was doing with his huge foundation and, you know, political people, people part of the United Nations, you know, in, in New York that we could invite. And of course, New York's, you know, Silicon Alley entrepreneurs who we didn't really know that well. And th this is kind of a theme of like how we built Summit. We would basically move to different cities, host free events, meet the local kind of influential people and up and coming, you know, creatives and artists and athletes and, you know, entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders and use these events and like kind of like, you know, co-hosts to help us gain and, you know, entree into really people that are like on the, you know, in the vanguard of wherever that is, you know? And so like another example is we, we moved to Malibu for five months, rented a kind of an old house that had a, like a surf break and like use that house to host a dinner every almost every weekend for five months hosting free events and broke into like you know all the people that are like you know in and around CAA and television production and movie production and you know actors and actresses and creatives and, and of course you know the, 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 the entrepreneurs in, in that world and artists and whatnot so like that kind of became like a, a, a method, a kind of a guerrilla tactic to summit. Were those free events, were they often dinners or did you do any other types of free events? We would do all kinds of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, we basically would do anything that we thought would be fun for ourselves. And then we would just be like, well, why don't we, like, you know, we're going to learn how to surf. Why don't we just have a bunch of people over to like to learn how to surf with us? Yeah. Uh, you know, like we rented a house in Nicaragua for five months and like Tim Ferriss came down to write a book and then we we're like, huh, why don't we invite people to come like learn from Tim Ferriss because mm -hmm. he's here and like he is chill and hangs out at dinner teaching us stuff all the time. We're interested in that. This is, you know, before he was as famous as he is now. Yeah. And then, you know, we're learning how to surf while we're down here and other people will, will probably want to learn the same. We're learning how to, you know, cook, you know, vegan, like we'll have other people come down. And so like a lot of our programming were just things that we were naturally curious about. Like if we're learning cooking, if we're learning mindfulness and we're living with people that are, you know, learning the same or experts on that, yeah. then we'll have, we'll host people and those other people will become, you know, kind of like the speakers. I want to go back to the, the White House event and you mentioned that you started a whisper campaign. So you were kind of nervous. You didn't think that the big wigs would show up to the event. And, and what is a whisper campaign and, and how did you structure it to get more awesome people to the White House? I mean, I wish I, wish I could say it's as sexy as it sounds. I mean, it was as simple as <laughs> we knew somebody who knew somebody who was like kind of um, who was in the White House and we we basically invited him to come to this meeting. He hadn't heard of the meeting. So then he, we, you know, that naturally caused him to ask other people around the office, like, why, you know, what's this meeting? Why isn't it on the agenda of certain people? And then there was an original guy who I mentioned invited us to produce this event. And then we would kind of back channel to him, like, you know, shouldn't this guy be invited? And we, 
And then he introduced us to a couple other people in the White House. And we basically just kept emailing different people that we kind of loosely knew through someone else. Like it kind of spidered eventually where we were essentially getting emails forwarded from one person to the next asking, you know, who's invited to this? What's the, what's the agenda? What's the purpose? And that just kind of naturally caused a bunch of people to like, you know, kind of uh, want, want to be invited to this thing that we otherwise like, you know, might not have had come. And eventually like the chief economist essentially like in the cabinet got caught wind of it. And then he invited like his staff and like, you know, it just became much more significant meeting. <laughs> wow. And, and how many people could you bring? Um, I think that event was like 50, 60 people that, that we could bring. And um, yeah, I mean, looking back on it, it's, it was, it was interesting. We had people from both sides of the aisle and all kinds of interesting people that we, you know, just had this awesome excuse to invite. Yeah. And was that free or did you guys charge for that event? No, that was all free. We paid for, it was, you know, we would do these things kind of thrifty. We'd get like a friend who owns a restaurant mm -hmm. that we met through a friend, you know, to host, to, to cut us, you know, a discount and, you know, maybe we'd get like one sponsor, but, you know, we also were willing to just lose small amounts of money on some of this stuff. Right. So if we go back to the Aspen event, you said you guys lost money on that one, right? And it wasn't until the fourth event. No, actually started? Aspen was losing money when we only had sold the first 30. And then we ended up selling 120 tickets in the end after we kind of okay. got people back on board. And so that one actually made a profit, paid for the losses on the second one and gave us the cash we needed to start building the third. Okay. But the nice thing about events is that they're working capital positive. And I, I love businesses like these where, you know, you're you're bringing in money that helps you produce and grow the, you know the next one as a person that does events i'm always curious about this do you guys do you balance a chunk do you say like oh we're gonna we're gonna invest 15 20 50 percent of the profits from this one into the next event or do you just take it all over put 100 percent into the next event or what what's your guys's model for that so biz now some have been a bit different biz now the first four years we took every minute we had a, any second we had a profit i'd go hire more employees launch a new market, launch new products. And then in years like five, six, seven, and eight, we started to be um, able to take distributions. Our scale got big enough. We were, you know, profiting millions of dollars and we could live on distributions as partners. Um, whereas Summit, we've, we've just always been reinvesting and Summit has been more of like a, a little bit more of like a, a lifestyle business of sorts. Like it's never really been meant to be a vehicle where we would make a lot of money necessarily. I mean, maybe eventually it will be, but it hasn't been today. And then when you guys started it out, did you know this was going to be like a 10 year project or something <laughs> you guys were going to know is just like, Hey, this will be fun. Let's go skiing. No, no, no. We had, we had like no <laughs> foresight whatsoever. Like, you know, I think after like a year I quit my job and realized that this was serious. Um, this and this now, once I got to a place where I could pay myself 6,000 a month, and, and that was enough for me to live, but I I don't think we had any clue. I don't I, I think our our, we, our desire was never to sell, um, and we still you know haven't sold you know and, and have no intention of selling Summit, and we bootstrapped everything so we weren't under any pressure, you know to to hit any particular metric or exit or anything. So we had kind of a long term kind of view without a whole lot of thought about where we you know kind of a, it wasn't like we had a five year plan or anything. So you said that number 6,000 a month twice now. I'm just curious, like, why, where did you come up with that number to, to say, oh, this is a good number? Because a lot of people say, oh, Ryan's sold a multi-million dollar company. You should get 100,000 a month or something like that. But where, why do you stick with 6,000 a month? 
Well, I've, I mean, I couldn't live on 6,000 a month today, to be honest. I wish I could. I wish that was true. But at that time, I think and a lot of people don't really, um, they don't set their goals appropriately. So in my opinion, like I've, I've seen a lot of people just create a lot of anxiety for themselves because they weren't that deliberate about their goals. So they, 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 they decided, oh, I'm going to raise 10 million just because I got to get to $100 million. They have some kind of magic number. But if they actually thought hard about their expenses and studied them, they'd probably realize that like, they're probably never going to need more than like a quarter million to a million a year to live for the rest of their lives. Um, maybe even less, you know, depending on where you live and what, what kind of lifestyle you want. And in order to achieve that is can be fairly straightforward. And if you set your goals like lower, frankly, then you can like build a minimum viable kind of like, you know, product and marketplace as opposed to like, you know, burning lots of cash, losing money for a long time. And often those companies, you know, of course, fail in the end. And so I've always been trying to avoid that sort of methodology that like Silicon Valley startups take and try to just think about how in 12 to 18 months can I make just enough that I'm paying for my current lifestyle. And ideally, once I do that, get to a place where I could also afford, you know, maybe children or whatever my future lifestyle involves. Okay, I think I want to come back to that, but we'll keep on the story of Summit. So how many events have you guys done now? Oh, I mean, we've done hundreds. And, I mean, BizNow was producing 300 conferences a year. Um, just for Summit, yeah, just for, for Summit. For Summit, right? I mean, we, we did lots and lots of smaller events, but in terms of like what I would call our flagship events, we were doing those like basically twice a year uh, for the last 12 years. And then you have how many members? Do you have like a, a community of members? Yeah, Summit recently launched like more of a formal subscription like community uh, for for a portion of the community, but otherwise we not we don't have like a true membership. I mean, people self-identify once they've been to a summit event as summiters, and there's certainly like a culture and like a group, and people self-organize events all the time, and they'll say like, "Oh, we're having my you know summit people over." And we have, of course, you know, an email list, but I wouldn't say it's like a paid, like, you know, I've got, we've got X thousands of paid subscribers. There's been thousands that have come to the flagship events over the years, right? Yeah. Like our, our biggest event was probably 4,000 tickets. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, our events are like anywhere from like, you know, we have, we host weekends out of Powder Mountain that are, are as small as 150. We do, we do dinners in cities sometimes that are like 50 people. And then we have these flagship events that range from like 500 to like, um, you know, 3000 some odd okay. attendees. So when along the timeline did you guys decide or get the idea of we're going to buy a mountain? Well, as I mentioned, we were, so we didn't want to live like these traditional lives where we had like normal office space initially. And so we basically took all the money that we had from, that we were paying an office rent in DC at the time in 2008 and the money that our team was paying in our apartment rent. And we collected that and we all lived together and we moved around and rented houses. And we basically lived like, you know, in Nicaragua, we lived in a houseboat in Amsterdam, we lived in Tel Aviv, we lived all over the world uh, at like basically renting places for a month to six months at a time, working, hosting events, you know, having fun, you know, uh, trying to find, you know, learnings in each of these places. And so we were kind of living these nomadic lives and then, this guy, Greg Morrow, came to us and said, hey, I, I'm, a, I'm a skier and I live, I have a second home in Powder Mountain and I, I know it's up for sale, it's in distress. And that was maybe in 2011. And so we decided we would join venture with him and we would acquire the mountain and 
we would move there, our, like move our team, move our company to Eden, Utah, which is basically a rural part of Utah that has this beautiful 10,000 acre ski resort. And we would buy this, you know, roughly $40 million asset and invest what ended up being, you know, over a hundred million dollars and, and growing into infrastructure, build roads, build utilities, find water, build wells, you know, bring, bring, you know, internet to the top of this mountain uh, and build this community in pristine nature where all kinds of creatives could come together and have awesome kinds of, you know, programming, talks, music, comedy, you know, wellness, et cetera, dinners, and own either a primary, secondary home and eventually have hotels and, you know, build a master plan development um, for the kind of, you know, underneath the ethos and principles of the summit community. Um, yeah, not, that's, so we eventually acquired the land in 2012, went through a whole process of, of rezoning and, and master plan, you know, uh, you know, planning this whole thing, architecting it, getting the local community behind it and, you know, approving it of what we were going to do there. It's still open to the public. You know, it's a ski resort. Uh, thousands of people ski there. Uh, and, um, you know, there's restaurants. It's, 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 it's a complex business. There's, there's many components to it. Um, so yeah, we, we became developers, ski operators, community builders, you, you know, farmers, you know, like, uh, you name it. It's, 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 there's quite a lot going on. There. So you mentioned like Greg, Greg brought this idea to you guys, but I'm sure there was a lot of discussion beforehand, right? Before you can get to the point where you buy this thing. What were some of those discussions leading up to the decision of, of way, oh yeah, we can do this thing? And then maybe if you can describe a little bit, like the moment that you all decided this is an actual thing we can do and we're going to do it. It was very quick. Was it? Greg called. There was like a first call. We uh, The partners were excited about it. We had a second call. I think actually maybe a meetup with Greg in LA. And we, we flew, I think literally the next day after meeting with Greg, like last minute flights, flew to Utah, went up to the top of the mountain, looked out at this you know, four state view. You can see Nevada, Idaho, Wyoming, and Utah from the top of this mountain saw the awesomeness of being in nature. We all, you know, we were skiers and fell in love with the place and decided, let's do it. Let's see if we can pull this off. We rented a home at the bottom of the mountain. We ended our lease um, in, in California at the time, moved our entire company, our team, haven't bought the mountain yet, to Utah at the bottom of the mountain, living in a lake house all together, playing, you know, pick up sports in the afternoon in this big you know, lawn in front of our house, making calls to host people out of the mountain, producing events there, you know, building a culinary team, like essentially building a bed, of, a bed and breakfast at the bottom of the mountain, all the while getting to know the local community, doing diligence on putting the mountain under contract, doing diligence on water, power, you, you know, sewer, you know, the ski resort, who runs it, how does this work, you know? How does, we don't, I mean, we don't know anything about how ski resorts work. We don't know anything about engineering of like how to, you know, how does, how does, a, you know, there's always things you don't think about. Like how does like a, how do, how does a mom and her kid on a snowboard get from point A to point B safely, you know, into their home? How do you get groceries? You know, like, you know, how do you get Amazon to deliver to your house on top of a mountain that like is barely on Google maps? Like, you know, there's so much shit to figure out. Um, and um, and so we we basically just were working on all this while hosting a, a, events out there, and um, 
and putting together, you know, the financing and, you know, everything that goes into pulling this off. So the idea is like, you're going to pick up this mountain that's distressed anyway, the ski resort. And who knows, why was it distressed? Do you even know, like they didn't have funding or they're losing money on it or yeah. what, what was happening? Um, yeah. The builders before us had planned to build kind of like another veil thousands of units, like another, like kind of Disney world on, you know, on top of a mountain, which the local community was adverse to, you know, as they, rightfully so. And they also hit the 2008 recession. So they were having a hard time getting it approved by the local community, their vision, because they, they, they had bought the mountain for so much and they, they wanted to make so much money that they needed to build a much bigger development than we, than we intend to build. And, they also hit the housing crisis. And so they were in over their head. And so they ended up losing the mountain to their lenders and their lenders ended up becoming in distress themselves. And, and so that created an opportunity. One, because we had no intention or desire to build thousands of units. And so we, we had a concept that I think was more, um, would kind of save the mountain for the local community to some, to, you know, in some, in some respects. And also we were buying it for less money. So we didn't have to build something as aggressive. Uh, as they did. And we had a built-in community. Do you know what they paid for it? Yeah, they paid, I think, $150 million for it. Oh, man. So you guys got a deal, big deal in it. Yeah. Okay. And then you guys were coming in with the idea of let's make a community out of this. And and basically, if correct me if I'm wrong, but it's pre-sell it for a million dollars, a property, and try and get two was it 250 people to, or what was your first benchmark? No, the, the idea was that we'd build this founding member program where if you if you were basically, we would sell you essentially like a, a lot, essentially you put in a million dollars and once we sell our 250th lot, you'll get your money back. And so you're helping us put up the money to initially host events, acquire the mountain, market the ski resort to the rest of our community and others, build the initial infrastructure, build the first lodges, renovate existing, you know, ski lifts and things of that nature. And then you know, so many years into the project, once we've sold 250 lots and we're in the black uh, and we've built some of the critical infrastructure to kind of get the thing off the ground, then we'll repay those initial homeowners so that they ultimately got their land for free. And uh, so that's kind of how we financed the project. What was the, so, well, so you wanted- A portion of it anyway. Okay, so you didn't get all 40 up to get the 40 million or- no, we, we, we did get 40 that way, but the mountains turns out the mountain costs more than 40 because the infrastructure is very expensive. And so we also did like a municipal bond backed by the, the county and, uh, you know, and future taxes and things like that. So there was a variety of other ways that we used debt to finance the project as, as well. It's amazing, man. I love this. And then, so who is going to take care of the ski resort? Like it, who's, who's managing that thing? You guys, you're doing the real estate. You got the ideas for the real estate. Did you, was there a team there already that was just going to transfer over to, you know, you take ownership, the team stays there and the ski resort keeps going as is, or what happened? Yeah, I mean, it was very challenging, but the team was, there was a team in place. We, we ended up over time kind of evolving, you know, elements of that team. But, um, and there was, you know, there were, we had to build a development team. We had to build um, a membership company, you know, to, to basically build a club there for the community that buys them. We had to build a homeowners association, um, like an architectural design review board. There were so many components to it. Uh, we built a hospitality company that we, you know, could host events and weddings and things like that out there. And um, we built a brokerage company that could, you know, broker the real estate. 
uh, there and um, would be licensed. And so there were, there was a lot of things to it, but there was an uh, initial managed team operating this, you know, the ski operation that we kind of evolved over time. And so as you're building all this stuff, what's your, what was the team size when you bought the mountain and then you guys are, I imagine hiring a bunch more people to start the events business and how'd that process go? I want to say, I want to say they had like 20 full-time, uh, you know, team members. And then in the winter, it's like 250 people seasonally. Oh, for this, who work the on resort. The yeah. Okay. Who work on the resort. And then the development company has a bunch of, you know, has a lot of people and tons and tons of contractors as well as full-time people. The brokerage company has brokers, mm -hmm. the, there's restaurants. I mean, there's, there's like a bunch of different kind of like subsidiaries, if you will, to the business and they all have staff. So, I mean, all, all combined, you know, and then when we host events, you know, there can be hundreds of staff working on the events. Right. Um, and then Summit, the events company and brand is a separate company and, you know, that has about 40 or 50 employees. Okay. And then we had BizNow at the same time, which was about 80 employees. Wow, man. It sounds like so much that you're managing over. I mean, it's, I know it's not just you managing over, but there's so many moving parts. And I, for me as an entrepreneur, I'm always like, how can I reduce? And, and I think you have this mindset too, but reduce higher revenue, lowest amount of people we need to run the show as we go and that sort of thing. But for me, this sounds like I'm not the type of entrepreneur that wants to build a company with 50 and 100 employees, 200 employees. I want five max and a certain revenue that makes me really happy and comfortable with my lifestyle. So I don't know, for me, yeah. it, it seems like it's a hard thing to fathom all these moving parts, buying a mountain with a resort on it an events company and a development company and all this stuff and Summit Series while you're doing it. Like, what's the balance there for you? Like, how do you not get involved or attached to all those other small moving parts so much that could you could easily do and i and i do you know i i, I tend to be like <laughs> okay. i tend to be very i love to do as many of the roles as i can it was built very iteratively so you know i learned each thing as i went and then i would replace myself i learned over time that i should always have like two or three people who are apprenticing alongside me anytime i learn anything new and this is something I'm always trying to remind myself, like I'll start to deep dive into like, you know, hey, how does email marketing work? And I'll get like a weekend, I'll be like, wait a minute, I really shouldn't spend another minute learning about this unless there's like three other people learning this simultaneously, one or two of which are going to replace me. And then as I replace myself, I move on to the next thing and the next thing. And I'm basically tearing up my job description like every three to six months. And, you know, over, over a period of time that kind of compounded and eventually some people emerge as rising stars and they can become, and I built this kind of rotational program too, where people would, I would hire people and say like, look, you're a rising star. You're going to work in marketing, then account, you know, maybe accounting and sales, or you're going to, you know, do event production and then learn the programming. And so that you can have, you can be as multidisciplinary as, as I feel like I am as like a co-founder and CEO so that you can take over and be very dynamic entire departments or cross depart or you know even span departments and so you know i replaced myself with another ceo in BizNow. i replaced myself with another ceo in powder mountain and you know at different points same thing in summit and uh i would hire coos underneath them and you know heads of departments beneath them and uh, but it was always very bootstrapped you know it wasn't like we were just like burning cash to do this um i was it was kind of methodical I, i'm sure we could have grown faster had we like added rocket fuel to the thing with capital. But I was a little bit more in your mindset of like wanting to keep my, my burn low. 
I love the idea. I think I heard you talk about it on a, uh, another interview that you, and you just mentioned it again, but you have three or four apprentices for each job that you hire, not just one, because you don't know if that one can actually do the job. If you hire three or four of them and then train them, you're going to find at least one that could do the job. Where'd this concept come from? And could you like give us a few examples of you using it? Yeah, it was just from making the mistake of not doing that initially. Initially, I would constantly be like, okay, I'm going to go master how to be a head of sales. I have no idea how to be a head of sales. I'm going to read every book. I'm going to go on YouTube, watch tutorials. I'm going to call heads of sales at other companies and ask them to coffee. And six months from now, I'm going to be an awesome head of sales. And then I'm going to spend another six months actually being the head of sales and like and making sure I you know get good at this. And then I'm going to replace, and then, and then it takes, you know, 90 days to do a search or more to find a replacement for myself. And then when that replacement comes on board, you know, 40% of the time, then they're, they're not a good fit for whatever reason. Maybe I need to move them into another department of the company. Maybe I need to, you know, let them go. And now I'm like back to searching again. So it would often be like, you know, two years before I really replace myself in a new thing that I was pursuing. So I learned that. And then I started doing it with just like, you know, I'll have one person apprentice. And then half the time they're not the right person or they look like they're doing a great job initially because they're really good at the research part and the learning part, but they're not really good at like, and they're maybe even good at project management, but they're not good at human resource management because they can't get along with people or motivate people. And I just, you know, I just learned like humans are full of flaws and, you know, challenges and, you know, like they're not all going to be great at like six things or mostly a lot of them are going to be good at only one or two things. And so if I hire like three or four people to apprentice, like one of them is going to be dynamic enough to really take over. They might have some weaknesses in a few spots where I could support them or get someone else to support them. Or I just need to be, you know, chill about the fact that they're going to do this job 70% as well as I'd like it to be done. And that's fine because that gives me enough. It's good enough so that I can move on and get into the next thing where there's like a higher yield on my time. That makes sense. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how I just evolved into this. What's a good salary to pay uh, an apprentice? If you've got four of them going on, you pay them like each couple thousand a month or three thousand. What do you, what's the bar for you? And how long do you keep them around until you you decide? Okay, we're gonna move you on to fully full position. I mean, in the early days, it was a recession, and I could hire people for less. And it was also, I was like so in the weeds that I could, I could like actually do so much of the role that I could kind of persuade people to join me and just learn from me and take, take less. But as we evolved, I got a little harder to do. And so, you know, I'd hire like people from top 50 universities often who were, I thought were really smart and hungry, who didn't really know much about the role and um, <clears throat> were either right out of college or a few years out of college. And I'd, you know, I'd pay them anywhere from like, 60 to 90 grand a year typically at, at, at the start um and then over time you know they, they would start to make six figures eventually um if they were if they were good and in some cases would make a lot you know quite a lot um but it just kind of depended on uh, the role and you know it's different different departments have like different demand like you know write, writers don't make as much as salespeople. Uh, unfortunately so like you know i pay writers a different amount than a salesperson perhaps so you were paying like all four of all three or four of those 60 to 90 grand a year and then whenever you decided they needed to go somewhere else or they they shouldn't stay along then you just let them go and then you elevated the main person is that kind of what i'm hearing yeah and and in some cases i would 
Um, well, if some of the people wouldn't work out, but I would then put them into another role where we had, you know, because we were growing. And this is one nice thing about having kind of a conglomerate of businesses too, is you could take people who aren't like a great fit for BizNow and put them in the summit or vice versa. And, um, and you always have like a home for them if they're good. I find if someone's really great, like I hate to let them go. So, you know, and then you'd cut the people that just obviously were in a fit or just wasn't exciting for them or what have you. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions on summit and then we'll move over to mental fitness stuff. But what's been the most fulfilling aspect of creating a organization like summit? It's been a skeleton key. I can call anybody on the planet and, you know, because of summit, I can generally get them on the phone, which is something I honestly think I was good at doing before summit. And I, and I always tell people that you just got to pick up the phone because amazingly people will most often take your call. Um, especially if you try them on like every channel. Yeah. But, uh, but summit's been this awesome skeleton key and I've just learned so much from getting to meet so many luminaries and so many fields. And what's so cool about summit is it's so broad. Like this now is like, in a you know, in a niche, Summit is like, you know, it's, it's for artists, it's for academics. We literally have astronauts, you know, come to Summit. So it's like, you know, if I want to know about what it's like to ski Everest, like, you know, Jimmy Chin is like part of the community and I can go have like lunch with him and ask him, that, you know, what was that like, you know, when you got stuck in an avalanche and you barely survived, like, you know, and like, so it's just amazing the, the kinds of people that I've had an opportunity to meet through this, this vehicle. So first person that comes to your mind, who's the most impressive person you've met through Summit Series? Oh, man. I mean, I, uh, I really, I mean, I, you know, I, I love like Tim Urban from Wait But Why, who's like this awesome blogger. Uh, I just think his mind is absolutely genius. The way he thinks about things is so unique. Um, I, I really admire and look up to like the people who have like really like mastered mental, you know, fitness and mindfulness. And so, you know, the Buddhist monks that have come through summit, the people who master breath work, like Wim Hof, um, and others along that, those lines, I've always been fascinated by, uh, people like that, you know, the people who study neuroscience and the brain and cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, a major source of knowledge and wisdom has been Esther Perel, who's like a famous relationship psychologist. And, um, you know, she's had a profound impact on my 12 year, you know, marital relationship uh, with my wife, you know, just learning from her. So, you know, a lot of the more like people who did research and were academics, I find so fascinating. Uh, I know, of course, the, some of the entrepreneurs are really cool and interesting what they've done. Laird Hamilton, you know, is a famous, you know, surfer, just like the lifestyle, people who architect life in a really creative way, people who live artistically. You know, like Laird has people over his house every weekend, uh, or I think every day in the morning to like do breath work and jump in the ocean and cold plunge. And like, he's just, he's built like a really interesting life. Um, there's this artist, uh, Peter uh, Tunney, who he himself is the art. Like, yeah, he sells paintings, but like the, the interesting thing about him is, is the way he sells his paintings for a lot is, is in part through his own ability to create story and to live an interesting life and people are drawn to him and he's just such a sincere um, authentic like creative person everywhere he goes you know he does something that brings like brilliance and creativity he like creates burning man wherever he is so like you know if he shows up at summit he doesn't just show up at summit 
he brings like, you know, an RV and paints it and turns the interior into like a magic, you know, room where he's doing magic and people are popping in. I'm like, no one asked him to bring the RV. He just like showed up, you know, he paid for a ticket and he showed up like everyone else, but he like rented an old Airstream and painted it with like, you know, the word gratitude on the outside and like, you know, buried little messages of gratitude around it that you can discover and just does magic in there all day. I'm like, before you know it, there's like, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are in there, like, you know, just because they were curious and like they're debating, <laughs> you know, the future of space travel or something, and, you know, and like Peter's just in the middle. And like Peter didn't like, yeah. he wasn't like, you know, hey, you guys should stop by. He's not a he's not like really a self-promoter in that way. He just creates such interesting moments. And so he's done this like everywhere he goes. And I, I just find it fascinating to see how people, like I love people who just like, hack they're like they realize that there's like the life is like they're in on the joke of like the cosmos you know and they just like they're not going to run their life like in a traditional way so i'm always kind of fascinated by people like that i love that man i love that i'm gonna i'm gonna research some of those people that you mentioned there we'll wrap up here soon ryan but i want to touch on some of the mental fitness that you've addressed and that you use on a regular basis because i'm always curious how people operate what are their habits what are their daily routines what are what are things that they're doing on a regular basis to take their lifestyle and their business and everything to the next level so what's kind of top of mind for you for mental fitness these days i mean it's just been the most rewarding thing i've invested my energy into has been better understanding my relationship with my mind and my, and my, and my, you know, my emotional state. And instead of that, you know, being, I've basically been able to reduce my reactivity, been able to be more kind of creative and how I approach my relationships. You know, perhaps my mom said something, you know, that she said to me before that's frustrating to me, you know, what's how's the business going maybe that triggers me or maybe you know because she's really asking like a loaded question or and i've been able to develop much less reactivity and much greater skill you know like in that instance you know instead of just like arguing with her about you know whatever she's trying to get at i could just give her a hug or change the subject and see if she minds or you know or just answer like with you know a gentleness instead of a combative nature um, even if I feel like I've answered the question 10 times, you know, in the last month and I can just be much more, you know, aware and adept at like, you know, at handling myself. So those kinds of things have been just enormously valuable to me. How are you training yourself to control those, that reactive behavior? So step one is to develop, is developing just awareness, right? So we all have awareness, but it's like under nurtured and we under nurture this kind of muscle. So I will, like anytime I see something red, I'll check in and notice uh, how, do, how do my feet feel on the ground? Is there a breeze in the air from the air conditioning unit? Um, is there, you know, what's the color of the light in the room? You know, is it yellow from the sun? Is it white from the overhead lights? And from there, I, I, do, I then have agency. I take back control of the moment instead of just automatonically just going along and being reactive to the moment. I can kind of choose oh yeah, maybe I'll take a deep breath right now. Maybe I'll smile. I'll force a smile. Maybe I will, you know, imagine something kind of goofy and silly in this moment to kind of cheer me up. Um, maybe I'll listen to music. Like, oh, I just noticed that there's no fun music in the room. I wonder if this experience would be more, you know, richer with, with music. And then, so I'm basically developing awareness, 
and then I'm experimenting and I'm trying to, and I'm also taking notice of patterns, you know, maybe, um, you know, I felt racy this morning and, you know, maybe tomorrow I won't drink coffee and see if I feel racy and see if that feels better. Or maybe the raciness was, was, was beneficial because it helped me get a lot done. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay with feeling racy for a few hours. Um, you know, maybe I feel, you know, kind of, there's moments of the day where I'll feel scarce, you know, where I'm like, I feel like nothing's working. I don't have any clever ideas. I don't have a lot of energy to get what about my to-do list done. And either I can just be okay with that and realize that, Hey, that's a feeling I feel every few hours and it's cool. I'm just going to wait an hour because it usually passes and I'm not going to feel anxiety about it because I know that it's, I'm going to have faith that this, this too will end. Or I might, you know, go for a run and like see if that makes the difference I'm looking for. And so I'm basically like, you know, combining awareness, noticing patterns and intervening interventions through experimentation. I was listening to, uh, do you know who Andrew Huberman is? Have you ever heard of him? I don't think so. He's, uh, I think he's the top neuroscientist at Stanford right now. I mean, he was on a couple podcasts recently and he was talking about that exact same thing. So when you see red and just like you did, one of the best things uh, you can do for the brain is take your focus off whatever made you, whatever triggered you and look at the wall and look at your feet underground or something like that. Cause that'll just trick the brain and say, Oh, whatever I was focused on isn't really as important as I, as whatever came up for me, whatever triggered me. And it's just telling the brain, turn your focus onto something else. Because if you continue to focus on that, that'll inflate the red, right. To make it much more that anger, much stronger. Yeah. And you, and you can develop empathy. Like my example, my mom, what she's really saying is like, I, I'm worried about, I worry about you. I want to make sure that you're doing, you know, you're not suffering from financial anxiety with your business. Um, and, and so, you know, rather than reacting and arguing, like a lot of the things we're reacting to are on the surface, but there's something deeper there. And so I could just give her a hug and reassure her that my worrying mom, Hey, I'm good. I love you. I'm, I'm doing great. And, rather than answering the thing that she, I thought she, you know, she's kind of poking at, she's really saying this other thing. And so like, I think as I've developed more awareness and more skill, I'm noticing much more of what's beyond the, beyond the, below the surface. You know, maybe my, um, my wife, you know, is frustrated about something and I notice like, oh, actually she's actually hungry. And like, I just need to get her a snack, you know, or I just need to give her space. Like I'm annoying to her right now. And, you know, and I could just like give, like leave the room and come back in 10 minutes because she's overwhelmed with work. And like, I'm pushing her to give me an answer to like, where are we going to go this weekend? And I'm just choosing bad timing. Like I, I should wait and pick a time when she's like relaxing. And so I just, all these things that I was just missing, I was just like out of tune with um, when I was like less aware and less skillful. I have a little mind trick like that too. When somebody does something that either annoys me or triggers me, I always tell myself either their dog died or they're constipated. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, you know, they're constipated. I'm okay. This is not a big deal. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned um, financial stress, something that comes up for you or has come up for you over the years because we handle, we deal with a lot of entrepreneurs either in our masterminds or just, you know, through conferences. And, and I'm shocked sometimes you've got these people that seem 
Um, like they've got it all together, have a seven, eight figure business, very successful, but quite often they're challenged a lot with financial stress, keeping the business afloat, you know, and this sort of thing. Is this something that you've been challenged or working on over the years for yourself? Yeah, it's like one of the biggest giants for me to, you know, um, transcend over my career has just been this like enormous pressure to provide for my future family, for, you know, maintain my lifestyle, upgrade, keep up with my upgrading of my lifestyle, you know, and, um, you know, actually, I think the part of my mind that's so good at business is that I optimize a lot of things very quickly and naturally. But because of that, of that I also will like, I'll, if I get into like, you know, outdoor furniture for my new home, I'll like overly optimize and I'll get to know all the differences. And then before you know it, I'll, I'll pay for an unnecessarily expensive couch because now I, I went and sat on three of them. And I know that the, that the one you know, at XYZ store, it's just a lot softer and plusher and nicer and looks better. And, and like, I wish, frankly, I didn't know the difference. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I think one mistake I've made in my career is I've upgraded my lifestyle uh, as I've upgraded my income. And so I've been like, you know, kind of on like this, like rat, rat race wheel of like trying to keep up with the, the, the spending. And, um, you know, one thing, if I could go back in time, I would do better is I would more gradually upgrade my lifestyle um, so that it was like, I could kind of like prolong, you know, it's, it's good to keep looking forward to like, you know, maybe when I'm 60, I, I could own like that thing. Like I don't need to own it at 30. And um, you know, he who has little is little owned. So that's been one thing. And then I think one thing I did do well though, is I've, like I was mentioning earlier, like the way I structured my capital and I structured my goals, I allowed them to happen very kind of gradually and growing our businesses. And it's amazing the power of compounding over time. If you just like make small incremental improvements each day um, in your skill set and your network and your and your wealth, like they just compound like crazy. And like I think a lot of like overnight successes, they're almost always like if you study them, like they've they've been around for I, I think usually seven years is like that seems like the magic number. At least. Like yeah. You know, usually 10, 12 years even. And yeah. so if you could just like, I wish I could tell my younger self, like, just go even slower. Don't freak out about like, the, you know, if you grow 10% a year, that like, it's amazing how much that'll grow over time. Um, and, you know, just try to make, I, I tried to make everything kind of profitable kind of quickly so that I wasn't under the gun of like, you know, investors and things of that nature. So that's, those are some things I did well and some things I, I didn't do so well. Yeah, that makes sense. I love that, man. Okay, I think we're going to wrap up there, Ryan. Any final words you'd like to give the listeners? Well, you know, I just uh, I just want to keep spreading the, the word that uh, it's just not that serious, you know, like the stuff that comes up for us. I like that. I think um, my mantra has been like, you know, silly is the way. Uh, like if you can inject a little humor and self-deprecation into your life, you can dissolve your sense of self that is kind of always wrapping itself around things and obsessing. And, and, um, and I love to just think like, it's just like, like take a deep breath. It's just not that serious, you know, like, and um, so I'll just, I'll leave you with that. I love that, man. Ryan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing the story of Summit and BizNow and all the stories and, and tidbits you gave with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Listeners, one more thing. If you want to learn more about Ryan, go to ryanbeagleman.com. 
and sign up for his newsletter if you're interested in having Ryan invest in your company. If you have over $300,000 more in profit, he buys some of those and you can follow him on Twitter. What's your handle, Ryan, on Twitter? I think it's just at Ryan Beagleman, B-E-G-E-L-M-A-N. Perfect. And again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all in the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.